good evening, uh, everyone, uh, and thanks for attending the November edition of Geosaurus Unleashed. Uh, welcome back if, this, if you're a regular attendee uh, to these events, and so glad um, to have the first time attendees here with us, especially during uh, St. Louis Startup Week. So, um, so for those of you that don't know me, I'm Mark Tagenhorst. I'm the Geospatial Program Director at T-Rex. And we hold these monthly forums um, that are designed to uh, inform and connect the geospatial community uh, in the region. Um, I hope everyone uh, is enjoying the content that's been provided during uh, Startup Week and um, had an opportunity uh, earlier this week to uh, hear the wonderful panel discussions um, on utilizing geospatial information and transportation and logistics. Um, hats off to Bronwyn Morgan, who moderated that panel. Um, it was a great cross-section of how uh, big industry, the military, and the startup community is, is focusing on, on geospatial in that sector. Um, uh, this month for Geosaurus Un Unleashed, I wanted to bring, uh, bring out a, a topic that's kind of near and dear to a lot of our hearts. Um, I've had a number of conversations with um, uh, startups um, who are either unsure on how or where to engage with big government, um, as well as equal conversations with government officials um, that, are, that are in need of innovation, that are uh, unsure what makes sense on where to engage with the innovation community. So um, we're, we're in luck this evening because um, we're going to, going to address exactly that topic um, with experts in the field um, to help you navigate the, the, that golden triangle. So um, first off, I want to introduce uh, Mr. Dave McAllister. Uh, Dave is an artificial intelligence and mission analytics leader at Deloitte Consulting, a good friend of, of T-Rex. He previ previously managed uh, an innovation software program at the Department of Defense's Strategic Capabilities Office and was an intelligence officer in the Navy for over 29 years. Uh, first off, Dave, happy Veterans Day, and uh, we're extremely uh, excited that you're able to, to join us tonight. Yeah, thank you, Mark. Very excited to be here. Good. Uh, so uh, next we have, uh, we want to welcome Sid Mansour. Sid is the CEO of Centrana Incorporated, a leading innovator in collaborative AI uh, machine learning operations technology. He's the architect of Centrana's uh, technology platform. Uh, called Deep Cortex and engages closely with his users to maximize alignment of the technology with uh, their user needs. Um, Sid's background is uh, uh, interesting in applied mathematics and geospatial analytics, and he previously served uh, NGA in a geospatial, uh, as a geospatial systems architect. So um, before we turn it over to Sid and Dave, um, BJ, is there any other uh, protocol that we need to talk about relative to questions and answers? Uh, no, just send uh, any questions in the Q&A box. I'll be watching that. Uh, Sid and uh, Dave will be as well. Um, I did want to give a quick shout out to, uh, to uh, Pete, who is on screen for a second, and, uh, and Garth. Uh, they're not part of the panel, uh, but they are great friends here at Deloitte. Uh, so without giving them a, a full intro, just everyone acknowledge their great work in helping us out here. Yeah, well, well said, BJ. All right, with that, date, uh, Dave, I'll, I'll turn it over to you and get us started tonight. Great, thank you, Mark. Yeah, excited to uh, talk about this topic. As, as Mark said earlier, it's something that's near and dear to many of our hearts, including mine. Uh, basically, I've been working in this space for the last four years in earnest. Uh, before that, though, uh, my next to last tour in the Navy was as the J2 at Transcom. So St. Louis, the geospatial community, um, and and working that intersection has been very you know, close to me since that time when I arrived there in the St. Louis area in 2014. But at SCO, I ran a software program. Um, and, you know, as part of that uh, program and my responsibilities as the PM, I met with companies uh, that were startups, everything from startups to big established uh, defense firms, you know, that uh, everyone would recognize. Everyone had a thing, an idea, a capability that they thought might have applicability to the SCO mission. So we, we were in the position of vetting that. And as I learned through that uh, experience, and then now since I've joined Deloitte being on the industry side of things, uh, 
bringing ideas and capabilities into government kind of crystallized this uh, idea of that triangle of there's the interest, uh, interests of industry, of government, um, and then what I kind of call the third side of that triangle is the contracting side of that. How do you get those industry things into government? You know, and it's through that contracting um, capability that the government has. And not everyone on the government side who has a mission need or a capability need, you know, is very uh, attuned to the contracting side of things. And industry often doesn't know, well, which way do I go? Do I go through the contracting side? Because they're the ones issuing these, you know, notices or requests for proposals. You have the client who is, you know, ultimately kind of telling you what the requirements are. How do all those things work together? And so my hope is that tonight we'll be able to field uh, questions from you on any specific, uh, you know, areas of interest or concern that you have uh, in that triangle and that Sid and I can kind of peel back um, our experiences and share with you um, our thoughts and, and ideas around those uh, three areas. Uh, so I'm gonna turn it over to Sid and uh, let you uh, hear from him exactly his uh, experience uh, and ideas around the, the triangle idea. Thank you very much, Dave. And Mark, thank you indeed. Uh, it's very much a privilege and a pleasure to be here with this audience. I appreciate the opportunity to speak to this group. Uh, perhaps, you know, what might help uh, is provide a little bit of background in terms of how we were um, given the opportunity to become involved with NGA. Uh, maybe just a two minute overview on that because we were primarily operating in the commercial space. We're an innovator um, that uh, started up in the commercial sector on the whole field of computer vision, AI, and machine learning. Uh, and uh, it just so happened that our paths crossed at NGA at a random event. Uh, the former director of NGA Cardillo was speaking at a Cornell University alumni event. And in this alumni event, uh, he was, expressing um, anxiety over the uh, deluge of data that analysts were confronted with and um, openly just put a call out to the alumni community saying that if there are good ideas of how to address this need where there is so much information now that we need apparatus that can help us uh, get on top of this data deluge uh, and it, it, was, uh, it was a very emphatic call to action um, where it resonated very deeply with us, uh, my, my colleagues in the audience. And we felt that what we had under our tool chain was the capability to get, um, uh, get a problem like that addressed. And so the effort then became one of how do we connect the dots between who we were and the capabilities that we felt could be marshaled towards addressing this need and individuals inside of NGA that could shepherd that, um, that innovation. And then there's a third leg to this, and this is where the golden triangle also comes in, is that uh, we were uh, very much focused on pushing the envelope of technology. NGA is very much focused on addressing a very critical, indeed vital mission need that caters to our national security interests. And then there is the element of making sure that we're not chasing pie-in-the-sky problems with pie-in-the-sky solutions, that there is a very legitimate and robust execution plan that keeps us grounded and well-managed in terms of that delivery. And this is where uh, Deloitte, who we have been working with for many years, um, uh, came into the picture as well. So that's our so if I could, story. If I could chime in and, yes. and riff off of that. Yes. So that risk that Sid's talking about, and you know, from the government side, there's great concern about you know, technical risk. Is it too ambitious? Is it executable? But also delivery and execution risk. So I think there's, there's you know, a couple of sides, maybe more than two sides of that risk uh, uh, paradigm there. Uh, and that's what I think it's important to pull apart those threads sometimes of what Sid said, the pie in the sky, is this even something that's feasible? And sometimes it's worth taking that flyer on something that may not be proven, but wow, if it does prove out, it could be a game changer. But then right. there's that, that execution risk. How, 
if you do prove that it works, can you deliver it and deliver it at scale maybe that the, the client and the government needs? Absolutely. And, uh, and just to riff off of that, what I will say, um, and, and I don't want us to get demoralized at all the risks here, but it's important to be cognizant that uh, wherever innovation is concerned, there is an appetite for risk that has to be tolerated. But risk mitigation and risk management and risk awareness and situational awareness are very key. And, and so there is execution risk, there is moonshot risk, there is change management risk. Uh, in case the technology does work, the upside risk is now we want people to really harness that technology and that innovation to make an impact on how they deliver against the mission. So there's a change management risk there that needs to be addressed. And there's a process risk. If this technology that did not exist before is now becoming something that's instrumental to meeting the end needs, then um, it changes the process by how people do their work on a day-to-day -day basis. And so there is a procedural risk as well. And, and I think within this golden triangle, it takes all points of that triangle to really corral, manage, and mitigate uh, these risks. And I think for the uh, individuals in the audience that hail from the startup community, and you're looking at this large opportunity to serve your nation, to serve NGA, uh, I think, uh, we shouldn't be gun-shy, and I would encourage you to not be gun-shy of vocalizing these risks. I think it'll be very much appreciated on the other side, the side that you're serving, NGA, to understand that you understand what risks uh, you foresee and to commission um, you know, the, the operational managers that can help navigate those risks. Yeah, Zed, I, I think that's critical uh, because it shows realism right, and, and managing expectations, <laughs> right? right? Uh, and then the other piece of this is, you know, there's a responsibility, I think, on the government side to write these requirements in a way that allow uh, smalls to, to offer their services in a way, right, that is realistic. Um, my, for example, I see so many of these broad agency announcements or uh, OTAs where they're just, they give you like a few lines of like, we want something that applies artificial intelligence to detecting objects. And if they look so broad, I mean, then anything, you know, looks like a hammer that can hit that nail. And that's not helpful to anybody. It certainly isn't helpful for a small that's trying to figure out how their capability might apply. So I, I would challenge people on the government side of this to be able to write your requirements in a specific enough way that you're offering a concrete thing to help with or solve, but that you're allowing innovative approaches to solve that problem. But you've got to define the problem so it's a concrete thing. And then conversely, when people are writing to respond to these requirements that come out, um, you need to be able, you know, don't tell me that your thing does everything, including sliced bread. Tell me how it specifically meets and solves the mission problem that's been articulated. And if at all possible, you know, tell me how you are willing to prototype it and lay out kind of that path to what a working prototype might look like and what that timeline and, and then bringing in, you know, what we just talked about, what are the potential risks, right? What are the, the, the things that are in that critical path, whether they're terms of resources or, you know, the technology hasn't quite proven out yet, so this is a risk because it is unknown. We, we think it's a theoretical approach we have, but we haven't been able to prove it in the field, so to speak. Uh, those are things that are key, I think, to making the, that initial connection work and getting traction for um, ideas and getting the, to find that common ground. And then the, the other piece of that then, then becomes that contracting. Do you have the right kind of contracting vehicle that allows you to bring in innovation, to prototype, to experiment, with recognizing that sometimes things will fail, right? But where's the appetite on the government side for failure? You know, uh, you can't do everything in a waterfall approach where you're you're minimizing the risk to an extent that you're never getting to delivering the capability in a fashion that's timely enough to meet, you know, mission requirements. Uh, and I think that's kind of where the contracting world right now is in a state of flux. They recognize the need to deliver uh, acquisition capabilities faster, 
and to account for these technologies that are evolving literally day by day, month by month. The state of technology is changing in such a way that we can no longer afford to enter into three-year procurement programs. We need things that are 90 or 100-day prototyping, followed by, yeah, you have a viable, you know, minimal product. We're going to move it into a production stage. So where are those types of vehicles and contracting approaches that allow for the people with the requirement and the people with the capabilities to meet and then, you know, do work and get paid for it? Dave, right on the heels of those points that you just made, I think um, is a very important question. And it's one that was posed by one of our attendees, Colonel Scott Heathman. Uh, and I'll just relay the question to you because I think on the very points that you made, uh, I, I think you'd be well positioned to answer this question. Uh, as the commander of Scott Air Force Base, I have a couple of challenges in connecting the dots. One is we don't always do the best job showcasing the problem sets we want solved. And two, many of our military members in various units have uh, no experience with innovation to the point of seeking contracts. Uh, and, and after you speak to this, I think there are a few points that I might want to say to this as well. Uh, what can I enable, uh, um, speaking for Scott, uh, Colonel, Colonel Heathman here, what can I enable for the community and small business to better educate my force and pull out the potential problem sets that can be addressed? And, uh, and, 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 and he follows up by saying, uh, Sibbers are a completely foreign word to, <laughs> to many yeah. military members. Okay, all right. Uh, uh, go ahead, Dave, why don't you take a crack at that and, uh, and, and, and uh, I'll follow up with a few words as well. Yeah, I mean, the, the first thought is um, having reverse industry days and industry days where you can just have an open dialogue about this and, and let those from industry and make sure that whoever your contracting offices and arm might be uh, for, for Scott Air Force Base, uh, pull in someone from Transcom's uh, TCAQ uh, to start that dialogue and have the discussion so that people you know, don't feel that this is just a mysterious thing you can't crack or solve, but that you start a dialogue. And then finding out from industry, uh, what their capabilities are may inform uh, the way that you ask questions or try to solicit capabilities or, you know, services that can meet your needs. And then conversely, be able to explain in simple English what your needs might be in a non, you know, non-binding uh, contracting kind of way. You don't necessarily have to issue an RFI or a, a formal solicitation to engage industry and figure out how industry might be able to help. But have those uh, acquisition professionals kind of within arm's reach so they can keep everyone out of uh, you know, peril, right? You don't want someone to inadvertently try to enter into an agreement uh, verbally or anything like that. Have the acquisition professionals there and, and Garth who's on the line, you know, lived in that world when he was in the government at Transcom and TCAQ. Um, and I think just, getting all the parties together to have that initial conversation can help solve a lot of the angst around, I don't know where to go, what to do. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, most certainly. So just homing in on Colonel Heathman's last part of the question, what can I enable for the community to better educate my force and pull out the potential problems sets that can be addressed? Uh, to that particular question, I would be absolutely remiss here that I, if I didn't tip my hat to NGA and particularly the program manager that uh, uh, brought us in and, and, and really put us on a path for success. Uh, the last three years have been, uh, uh, I think, uh, a tremendously successful experience for both us and for NGA. And I think NGA had a big role in this. And um, at, at some point midway through our work together, our collaboration, uh, I think the success stories were starting to emerge. And this was a question that was placed directly to Dr. Chowham in one of the forums that NGA was hosting, uh, where he was asked this question, what can we do um, as other program managers to better educate our own force to pull out the potential problem sets that can be addressed? And I will just plagiarize the answer that Dr. Chowham from, uh, from NGA put on the table. His answer was, look, we now live in an era where the innovation that is driving so much productivity gains 
and mission success can be traced back to AI and machine learning. And, and I know this is perhaps getting a very specific, but there's something here in his question that I think is important. He said, when it comes to the application of this new body of innovations that we could bring in to better impact our force, to better impact our missions, the questions that we should be asking ourselves and asking our own teams is, if you could hire a large cadre of additional human beings to help alleviate your own workload, to help alleviate your own frustrations, to help alleviate work that falls off the table. Think about it in those terms. Think about it where you crave a larger labor force, you crave a larger brain force. Because those are the very things that when you home in on, you'll be able to identify the problem sets that are now well positioned for being addressed through the innovations that are now emerging in, uh, at lightning speed, namely in the field of AI and machine learning. So I love the fact that what Narendra did in answering that question is he brought it back to not technology, but he brought it back to human beings. And he said, where do you need more human beings? That is precisely where you ought to think about the, uh, the, the prospects of using technology and innovation to address that need because we are in a place where it is tough to just solve mission needs by throwing more and more and more human beings at the problem. Yeah, Sid, and, and specifically to that point, um, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that academia can play a very big role in that part of the, the equation right there. And, and I, I should have said this earlier, academia I consider as part of that industry uh, kind of area there. They, they straddle sometimes as FFRPs, you know, between the government and industry side of things. But there's a lot of capability in academia. And even, you know, for Colonel Heathman's question there, uh, you know, partnerships with local universities to help them advise and think through your problems. They're often willing to do that, uh, contracted or non-contracted uh, basis. So uh, I wouldn't uh, look past them you know, they're a very important resource as well. And I think they're doing some of the most uh, groundbreaking uh, studies on, you know, how you reimagine your workforce and how you re-engineer human capital needs based on what automation can do for your business. But that didn't, does get back to the business process uh, reinvention to change management. You know, people are the hardest things in all this equation. Technology is sometimes easy. You can make a widget, you can put it to work, uh, but getting people to use that widget or change the way their workflow uh, goes, that's often, you know, even if you have a great widget, sometimes it'll die because people aren't willing to change the way they do their work. Uh, so having that first and foremost in mind is, is often a key to success as well. I see we have another question about uh, NGA offering open houses and events uh, so that program managers uh, can be present and get to know and meet startups. Uh, unfortunately, neither Sid nor I represent NGA. We can't commit NGA to anything, but I, I think Mark and BJ can take a note uh, because we do have, uh, you know, the relationship with T-Rex and get that question back to them. Yeah, so, I mean, there's a couple of things they've already been leaning forward is if you've been watching the news um, this week um, or last week, um, NGA is embedding 60-some um, personnel in, in T-Rex and in, in something called Moonshot Labs. Um, so that'll be an opportunity for NGA to work directly uh, in the innovation community and engage with, with startups and um, um, get a pulse on, on new technology. So that's one thing. The other thing is um, they'll be kicking off an accelerator uh, program uh, here in the very near future. So it'll give um, startups access to some of NGA hard, hard problems um, and to be able to solve in an unclassified environment. So um, th those are two significant events that NGA has taken over the last um, six months or so and um, will be obviously beneficial um, to the startup community. It'll be beneficial to NGA um, so we'll get more details as that uh, emerges um, from NGA. Uh, but they are making a uh, concerted effort to engage in the community. I think they've realized a few years ago that technology was moving faster than they were and the, their best bet was to lean forward and get embedded and understand the culture 
and um, adopt some of that that culture within their organization. Um, one comment I want to make um, based on, on on some of the previous questions. So when I was on the NGA side, I, I was always confident that we could come up or um, develop technology with some of our partners to solve a problem that we had. The, the long pull in the tent for me was always the transition of that technology into a classified environment that was um, totally risk averse for, for all the right reasons. So whether it's Transcom um, or NGA or any other um, intelligence community or DOD um, yeah. uh, organization, one of the big problems is is the transition of that technology, right? So we've 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 worked with partners and we've developed phenomenal things. And for uh, either it was too long of a time frame to get it into uh, at the end of the hands of the analyst because of all the restrictions that you have and the regression testing and and all of the steps that you need to make sure that there are no um, uh, no disruption to the systems uh, because they are, you know, mission oriented. Um, that that was always the long and it, long point in the tent. And I would I would say part of that was on the side of the government, not clearly um, uh, articulating what the environment, the insertion environment would be. And um, it was actually I mentioned in this day because back to your one of your original points, how the government needs to do kind of a better job of um, discussing not only the hard problems but the architectural framework that they'll Yeah, and what the requirements are right on that side, especially in the classified space. And um, a couple of comments on that. So I, I am seeing progress on the government side with the thinking around DevSecOps and uh, continuous integration, continuous delivery for you know technology software related requirements. And at the end of the day, ultimately that's what we're talking about you know, algorithm development, uh, AIML pipelines, those kinds of things. Uh, Sid and I have been involved in solutioning and architecting uh, for multiple proposals uh, over the last year. And that's always a real consideration, right? The valley of death, getting over the hump. Even if we prove the prototype works, you know, is the government ready, willing? One, do they have funding? Two, do they have the technology environment that will allow us to come in and bring new things? So, but I am encouraged by the fact that there's a recognition. So you have um, platform one, cloud one, you know, in the Air Force, uh, making great strides to kind of cracking that nut and proving it will work out. I hope the IC benefits and learns and, and starts moving in that direction where they're truly thinking about that DevSecOps implication. Uh, but what smalls I think can do to help themselves is if you're not able to uh, handle all of the complexity that would be required. You know, think about teaming with a big, someone who is capable of, uh, you know, has the, the software engineers and the cybersecurity people who can help you get through the whatever RMF or ATO framework is required. But more importantly, do the systems integration testing, right, that's very necessary so that mission critical systems aren't negatively impacted with the second, third order effects that weren't foreseen. Mm -hmm. uh, you we're going to have to have that kind of testing. The government can't do it because there aren't enough qualified people in the government to do it. It's something that has to be done by industry. And often the only way is going to, it's going to be a team of, of companies coming together to solve that problem. You know, Dave, I think that um, uh, from my perspective as a small, uh, I can say this um, uh, without much shame. I can say that as a small, as a startup, uh, we oftentimes become very enamored with our own technology and our own innovation. And it's almost as if there's um, a, a sense of innovating just for the sake of innovating. And uh, to add further to why it's important to team with a big and the value that a big could bring to the table, um, I think there's one other thing that you do and you do it, I think, so subconsciously uh, and diligently that you didn't mention it because I think you might be somewhat even, um, it's, it's just become second nature. But uh, as a systems integrator, uh, what you're looking to do is not innovation for the sake of innovation, but innovation for the sake of mission impact. And so you've got that lens on and that lens is, look, this is a shiny object, 
but do we really need a shiny object right here uh, in this problem sphere? And so that uh, problem first, focus, and uh, the path to meeting that problem with the least risk and highest ROI return on investment possible has, is, 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 I think, the path that you provide to a small so that we don't get carried away uh, being so in love with our technology that it might not actually deliver mission impact. And I think that is a tremendous value for a small and a tremendous incentive for a small to really hook up with a big. Because oftentimes even customers themselves uh, can become so enamored with the technology because it is a shiny new object. Who doesn't like something that's sexy, right? But, uh, but I think there is a risk of losing sight of what is the mission impact that we hope to achieve here. So I, I, I wanna put that on the table, encourage the smalls to think about your customer not only as a partner, but a big as a partner as well, because it is indeed going to take this bilateral set of partnerships to ensure that the technology that you are so excited about actually is operationally impactful. Yeah, good. Hey, um, so I don't see any open questions um, in the um, in the Q and A. So, I, so I have one. Just um, so, so of course, when I came over to the T Rex about fifteen or sixteen months ago. Um, didn't really understand the, the startup world and um, in some of the challenges face, uh, they were facing. So I have a question for you, Sid. Actually, so if I'm work, if I'm a, um, a startup and I'm working on a specific technology, are, are there uh, so the the investment that comes in to, to support your um, startup? Are, are they encouraging you or discouraging you or, or neither towards working towards big government? Be, because I ask that because of the time frame that it typically takes to, um, you know, to get something in, in place with um, the U.S. government. So, uh, so Mark, let me just uh, um, clarify. Is the question, uh, are we being encouraged by potential government sponsors to go after government contracts is 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 that the question the, the basic question is the investors that and that um are, are are working with you do they encourage you to go towards commercial avenues to get things to market quick or are, are they patient enough for you to go to um to work a big government contract i think um uh Speaking on behalf of what we've experienced as, as, as an organization and what some of my other colleagues and other startups have experienced with the investor community, investors are uh, very diverse. They're very heterogeneous. They have different objectives, all of them. But there is one common thread, and that common thread is they want to make sure that the technology that you're building is technology that, and the innovation that you're hatching is an innovation that will gain traction that you have not just fallen in love with your own research, but it is going to be impactful for whoever is going to use it, whether it is the government uh, who might acquire it at a slower pace than commercial, who might acquire it very rapidly. They want to see that uh, traction and they want to see a path towards traction. And whether the government signs the contract saying, this has now become a program of record is secondary to whether or not there are users in the government that will at least speak up and say, this will address a problem that we have. If we, if we ultimately acquired over two years, so be it, but it is something that is quintessential to us being able to move the needle forward on national security issues or on healthcare issues like over at the VA or what have you. So I don't think startups should be fearful of chasing down a government orientation Look, Silicon Valley was born from uh, uh, just the incredible amount of defense-driven innovation that was sparked out of the aerospace industry back in the 1960s and 1970s. Fairchild Semiconductor, the forerunner to Intel Corporation, it was building chips that were going to guided missiles. Yeah, uh, Lewis Shepard so, teaches a course about that at George Mason. Dan and teaches it, it's mm -hmm. fascinating. 
and and I would encourage folks. So I have not taken that course, but just on the just just on the 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 surface, it is absolutely fascinating, and it is also at the same time I think um, uh, uh, discouraging. I think when there is an assumption that is made by investors or by startup executives themselves, thinking that the government is not a place to go to thrive and succeed and expand the innovation envelope and indeed expand your business. I think it is incredibly fertile ground. And, and, and I think NGA gave us a tremendous springboard from which to uh, continue innovating and even expand further into commercial interests. Yeah, thanks, appreciate that. So we do have a couple of questions. Uh, first one up here is, would the government want to buy the startup if it's successful? Uh, the government is likely not going to acquire a company. They may uh, pay a company to develop uh, technology that under the contract terms would be the intellectual property of the government and belong to the government. So that's one avenue for the government to acquire whatever the uh, thing or capability. Um, but if it's a really successful approach or capability, it's much more likely that a small would be bought by a bigger company uh, and acquired that way. Uh, Deloitte does that all the time. We, you know, see things that are best of breed, uh, leading market, leading capabilities, and then we'll uh, work out an arrangement to buy the company. Uh, and in fact, I will say, um, going one step further, not only will the government not want to buy the startup, but uh, the technology that the startup is bringing to the table, oftentimes the government is going to think twice about buying the technology because they don't want to have to own, operate, maintain technology. And so it is very much a technology and human expert combined play. And so that's something to keep in mind. We ourselves as a technology purveyor have really come to understand and appreciate how critical it is for us as the human beings behind the technology to be at the service of the government users and at the government programs so that they can get the most out of the technology. And oftentimes it is us as the human actors on the stage that are more important than the technology itself. So uh, I would just encourage the, 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 the startup managers that are in the audience to keep that perspective in mind. Any other? Uh, <clears throat> Yeah, Mark, so Mark there's a, a question to you. Uh, any updates on T-Rex? Last webinar, you mentioned something about a data warehouse, data lake as a test bid. Uh, what is that about? Yeah, so I, I did mention it. Um, we've um, uh, we've partnered with Amazon Web Services. Um, so so when I came in as the program director for um, uh, the Geospatial Innovation Center at T-Rex, one of the thoughts that I had was to um, create a data lake or a data environment, warehouse, whatever you want to call it, that allows the, the tenants, the partners at um, the Geospatial Innovation Center to have access to data, data formats um, uh, that either they didn't know about or they couldn't afford to, uh, to continue their development. So that has always been um, a, a focus of mine since, since I've come on. Um, recently, I mentioned that um, uh, Amazon Web Services came in as, as a corporate sponsor, a partner to, um, and, and they're going to provide that. We're still working out the details um, uh, on, on, you know, how, how we populate that, um, that, that environment, um, how, how we control access. So it is um, going to, um, it, it, it's going to come to fruition. I just, we're just still at the earliest working out the details of that. So stay tuned. Um, as soon as we get that in place with Amazon, um, we'll announce that publicly. Mark, another question. Will there be more space for startups to uh, rent? Yeah, absolutely. Coming yeah, up? Absolutely. We have, uh, so we're at 100% occupancy um, in our office space, uh, but uh, co-working space is, um, is available. Um, we've uh, pleasantly been surprised that um, some of our startups um, have been filtering, trickling back in. So we're getting uh, more and more um, 
uh, density in, in the spaces. So uh, we're, of course, we have all of our protocols in place um, um, to, to follow the city guidelines. So it's a big enough space to spread people out. Uh, we also just, um, if you've been tracking the geospatial ecosystem here, you'll know that um, Arch grants for Arch grants for the first time uh, uh, gave out uh, five fifty thousand uh, equity free grants for geospatial companies. They just awarded those, and and two of those companies have already moved in to, to geospatial innovation center. Um, and um, yes, they do. We do have uh, lockable grower units in our co working space. So. Um, Anyway, it's uh, it, it's going to be a fantastic environment. And so in this collaborative space, we intentionally designed it to bring together industry, academia, government, military, and our startup community. Um, this is all about fostering these startups to grow, um, to mature them so that they can graduate from T-Rex. We don't want to keep you forever. We want you to be successful and um, and uh, graduate and provide economic vitality for the community. So, um, you know, the, when we talk about giving resources to the startups, we're talking about mentoring, uh, we're talking about data, software, um, expertise, hard problems for you to work on. Those are all the things that, that we're trying to create and have created with this environment. I hope that answers your, your question. Dave, here's a question for you. What areas are Deloitte recruiting for NGA or the STL area? I saw that. Um, so I don't have a specific insight uh, to what Deloitte's recruiting for, but we do have a great public facing website where you can search for jobs and you can filter by geographic area, job title, key skills, et cetera. Uh, that really is the best way to find out what Deloitte is hiring for. Dave, since it's uh, startup week in St. Louis right now, uh, I also have a question for you to follow up on that question, which is that uh, oftentimes, I think, uh, as a startup working with um, a big government customer, uh, what we have experienced in some situations is uh, there's a tendency for the customer, uh, you used the word requirements before, uh, that when requirements are spec'd out, it's not just requirements that are delineated in terms of what is the problem that needs to be solved, but what creeps into those requirements is a how, a prescription of this is how we want you to solve the problem. Yep. Now Deloitte also, as a big um, and as the systems integrator, uh, carries a burden or a responsibility to really foster innovation by not prescribing. So can you help uh, shed some light on this as a big, um, what, uh, what do you do to make sure that a small working with the government via a big does not fall into the trap of just catering to prescriptions, but really am delivering to instead on focused on delivering to problems. Yeah, that is a tremendous problem, Sid, with uh, the way government requirements are written. And there are a lot of reasons that the acquisition system, you know, developed the way that it did with very prescriptive ironclad contracts, you know, wanting lawyers involved, everything, you know, has to be prescribed down to specific performance standards and timetable, which doesn't very well mesh with this world that we're living in with technology and particularly software development and AI ML development, which is very fast moving and exploratory in nature. Um, so what we do at Deloitte is we try to become that trusted advisor for our clients on the government side and inform and educate and, um, you know, and influence the thinking and the approaches about these cutting edge technology areas. And, you know, if clients will listen, we try to uh, inform them on how requirements can be written um, so that you don't prescribe but instead enable you know, innovative approaches. And uh, ultimately it's, it's that client relationship and whether they listen and, and you know, trust that you know what you're talking about and they have the flexibility. Um, you know, and Garth is uh, having had the contract about, uh, background is, is typing in a note here, I think to the panelists. So, so I don't think the audience can see it, but um, making contracts outcome-based 
is very key in that. So instead of prescribing what the deliverables are, describe the outcomes that are desired and required, and then let people figure out how to meet those outcomes. So that, that's the nature of it. Uh, you know, it's people based at the end of the day, right? Because people write government requirements and government contracts. So you have to influence the thinking of the people. And so it becomes that, that relationship that you have, the client intimacy uh, and being able to matchmake, if you will, right? Because we know, hey, we know this startup is working on something we think that the government may be very interested in. Let's come in and, and do a demo for you and explain. That's the other piece of this. Uh, too many times I see, you know, both when I was wearing the government hat and now, you know, being on the other side of it, people come into these conversations with a PowerPoint deck, right? <laughs> Things on paper, right? It's PowerPoint deep. It's a great idea, but it's PowerPoint. If it's software, if there is any way possible to develop a working demo. And I recognize that trying to crack into the geospatial side of this with the IC, it's very difficult, right? Because you want to really get to the classified context of problems and be able to work in the classified area. But is that chicken and the egg? You often can't jump straight into that. You have to prove on an unclass way, right? That something has viability, that the technology is real. If at all possible, we need to have a software prototype or a possibility and is not just PowerPoint deep, but is actual real working code that can grab attention, can show the viability right up front. So we try to get to where we have that perfect situation where clients got a need, we're able to bring a capability and show it working in a manner that is real believable, that, that makes it tangible. Uh, but that's sometimes very difficult to do. You know, um, uh, Colonel Heathman has a fantastic question, and I want let's to get make, to it. Let's make this uh, the, let's make this the last left. one so that I give uh, you guys back some of your evening, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so his question is, uh, we have a software development team called Conjure that uh, was just given the software factory designation within the software ecosystem in the Air Force. Uh, the military does not have a true app store where it can park the tools and software that it has developed, uh, uh, where it can be used and repurposed uh, for other missions. Uh, and as a result, it doesn't create more room for development. Uh, and the question from Colonel Heathman is, what are our thoughts on how the government could off-ramp long-term sustainment of software that's developed internally? Uh, I could take a quick stab at that, Dave, um, and I think you probably also have some thoughts. Uh, I think this is where we can look to the commercial sector because what we see within large innovative enterprises, and large enterprises do innovate, uh, JP Morgan, Microsoft, on Wall Street, we see tremendous innovation within the buy. They are always innovating, and they have to make room for new development efforts and existing tools and software need to find a home from where they can be reused, repurposed, recomposed to something else. And, uh, and now what's happening is uh, they are not necessarily just creating their own app stores, but a lot of the software that is now being created is software that is uh, modularized. And so what you have is really modularized, recomposable software that gets set up as APIs. And so we live in an API world we live in a modular world, and it is critical that if you're going to put software on the shelf so that it could be reused, that you think about how to wrap that piece of software within an API and stick it into an API repository. And the cloud has become tremendous for this, either using the secure cloud, C2S, or the public cloud, AWS. And that is my two uh, response to a very complex question. Yeah, I, I was going to thinking along the same lines, Sid, uh, that, you know, it's the commercial side really that's going to offer the capacity and capability to uh, sustain that kind of software development. And the services have to think about this, uh, DOD at large, in, you know, marketplace as a service, uh, DevSecOps as a service kind of thinking about software modernization and sustainment. Um, for example, the Army's Enterprise Cloud Management Office just came out with an RFI centered around 
uh, create their platform where they're going to provide the tooling for the Army's DevSecOps internal software teams, right, that, that want the environment and the tools that allow them to code and develop apps and capability. Um, but the, the end piece of that is, right, okay, you built something great. Where does it go for sustainment? Uh, so maybe there is a sustainment as a service kind of concept that uh, could be contracted out. Um, it would be, I think, something that many companies would be interested in and bid on. And uh, as Sid said, if you containerize things, if you have an API first type of approach, uh, serverless architecture loosely, you know, coupled types of software principles that are driving all of your innovation and the products that you spit out the back end, it's something that uh, many in the commercial side would be very qualified to do and capable of doing. Hopefully that uh, helps answer the, the question, Colonel Heath. I would encourage I would encourage Colonel Heathman to reach out to either Dave or myself. This is a, uh, a a really important question, and there are very compelling and robust answers to this question. Um, but I think in this short time span that we have, we can't really yeah. entertain it, it and give it its full give it. And its having full having words for uh, Will Roper, <laughs> who was my boss when I was at SCO and is now the Air Force's uh, acquisition executive. Um, I would be very shocked if Will Roper hasn't thought about that very specific angle and, and doesn't have someone working somewhere up at the, at the headquarters Air Force level uh, on something along those lines. But I don't know for a fact. But I would be shocked if he hadn't because he's, he's the kind of guy that thinks about these kinds of angles and already has something in work. Hey, great. I, I appreciate it. Dave said, I appreciate you guys taking out the time uh, you're busy scheduled to spend an evening with us in the geospatial community here in the region um i just loved the the discussion could have could go on all night but um you know <laughs> you, you gotta have a life too so um you know th thanks again for this we really appreciate that peter garth thanks uh for uh doing the coordination and setting this up for deloitte um and bj thanks for uh creating a technical environment that uh, worked out flawlessly for everyone. If you have any follow-up questions um, for Dave or Sid or myself, please um, send them to me or BJ. We'll make sure um, we answer those uh, uh, as quick as we can. So thanks again for everyone who took time out of their evening to spend with us at Geosaurus Unleashed. And uh, we look forward to seeing you again in December. Thanks. Hey, thank you all. Yep. Thank all you. Right. Thank you. Bye-bye.